We return to bringing light into darkness with Jeremy Kazmarov as he critiques the false narrative surrounding Ukraine because of its omission of important historical context. I mean, the narrative exactly that's being fed to people uh, in the United States and across the West, yeah, it was a false narrative about Russian subversion and and interference. I mean, it ignores the whole history and the unpopularity of the coup government that took root, which was seen as an illegitimate government for good reason. And in the Donbass, they're also imposing language laws. When these are Russian speakers, they're trying to enforce the Ukrainian language, including in schools, And that's basically seen as an attempt to obliterate their culture. So people are not going to submit to that. Very good. Again, I want to remind you that this is bringing light into darkness, Monday News and Analysis. We are with the distinguished editor of Covert Action magazine, Jeremy Kazmarov. He's recently written a number of articles. One had to do with the anniversary of this horrific slaughter in Odessa of May 2nd, 2014. He also has written another article that I wanted to turn to and ask you to speak to. It's called Remember the Maine, the Alleged Russian Atrocity at Bukha. Looks like another in a long line of false pretexts for war. You wrote that just a week or so ago on May the 13th of this year. Before we turn to that, I wanted to again Give people the context here. So you have this coup in 2014 that you've indicated was really the big triggering event. Uh, You have this massive repression as exemplified by Odessa that came shortly thereafter, a couple months later in Odessa. Following that, the people of the East saw this. They actually came to the understanding and they asked for the Russian government to absorb them and protect them from these offensive threats. And actually the Russian government said, no, we're not going to do that. That you are part of the Ukraine. We are interested in your safety, but this is a Ukraine thing. The whole Minsk agreement was generated out of that in order to find a political and peaceful resolution to the situation. And these referendums that occurred in the Crimea the referendums that that occurred in both Donetsk and Lugansk, they all happened the post-period after the Odessa massacres and stuff. And then, just so people understand the, the chronology of some of this stuff, but as we turn to the ongoing and the unending demonization of Russia, and certainly we don't have to have a love fest with Russia in order to recognize that So many of the narratives that have been pushed have been based on unproven accusations. We've already talked about the unproven Russian bounty story. We already talked about the Georgia-Russian conflict of 2008 being completely misrepresented to the American public and that that Russia was the aggressor and started the whole thing. That's that's also been shown to be a falsehood as well. And then I thought your, your article was really well done on laying out the contradictions that uh, suggested that Russia was responsible for these hundreds of, of murders in Bukha. But again, at the time, it served its purpose, which was really to promote all of this military legislation that followed these accusations and were cited as a justification for these military types of, of support for Ukraine. But can you walk us through 
this period, this early April period, just a month or two ago, in which we were inundated with news shows about Buko being the result of this unprovoked, inhumane, horrific murders of hundreds of, of unarmed civilians that was laid at the feet of Russia. And yet when we asked for the evidence that pointed towards that, there's a lot of contradictions in the evidence that suggested something very different happened. Can you walk us through that, Jeremy? Sure. Yeah. And first, I, I would add that the litany of things that Russia has been accused of, including you know, downing this Malaysian airliner, uh, even the sanction, you know, they were accused of murdering a lawyer in a prison, uh, Sergei Magnitsky, when that story was proved to be dubious. And he may have been part of a tax scam uh, against the Russian government by an American oligarch, and he may have died of a heart attack. Anyway, it's been a relentless propaganda barrage. And there had been no, no room for any kind of nuance or uh, explanation for why you know, Putin has had some popularity in Russia since he rejuvenated their economy from the Yeltsin years. So it's just you know, completely one-sided. And you know, it's similar to the propaganda during the First World War against Germany that's designed to stir hatred for Russia and condition the public for war, which we're basically seeing a war playing out. I mean, the U.S. was involved in the sinking of a Russian warship. Very recently, the Moskva, which from a Russian point of view, is basically tantamount to an act of war. And the U.S. is very active in the Ukraine, having trained Ukrainian forces through the CIA and special forces. So this is, this is all very ominous, what we're seeing. And I think Buka is just the latest blame Russia story, an attempt to demonize Russia further and, and make the Russian government look to be barbarians and to justify these huge military aid shipments to Ukraine and possible war, which you know, could evolve into a world war. Now, the, the situation on the ground, Buko, is that what, what's eerie about that whole situation is that the Russian withdrew, I believe, on March 30th, and the mayor Fedorov made a statement that, oh, our city's been liberated as if everything was great. And it was kind of a very happy statement. No mention of any massacre by the Russian troops. The New York Times had a report on that day by two reporters who may have been in Buka and no mention of any massacre. There's mention of a few dead bodies. And actually, the New York Times made it appear that they were probably killed by Ukrainians, that they had what looked like food that the Russian army had been giving out next to them. So they may have been accused of being Russian collaborators. That was the impression the New York Times left with its reporting. It came out April 2nd, and it was only April 4th, four days later, when these allegations started coming out that the Russians had massacred all these people. Now, where the bodies came from, we don't know, because the mayor then claimed there were something like 400 victims. Firstly, there, there were no firsthand evidence of any major massacres. There were no videos, no photographs. There were just some photographs of a few you know, bodies strewn across the street. But those photographs were very odd because, firstly, the, the number, it didn't show hundreds of victims. It showed maybe at most a dozen victims who had their hands tied behind their back and they were in the middle of the street, which is kind of odd because usually if there's a massacre, you might take prisoners to a certain location 
and then massacre them? Why would they be lying in the street? You know, just a few of them spread out. Some had armbands that indicated you know, they may have been loyal to, to Russia. And then it was reported that the Azov Battalion carried out a major sweep after the Russians had left. And some Azov Battalion members bragged openly about hunting Russians and killing people. So uh, you have the impression that Azov definitely killed a lot of people. The Russian army admitted to going Nazi hunting, according to Human Rights Watch. And a Human Rights Watch report did mention some incidents where the Russian army shot at civilians and killed a civilians, a girl or a man who was smoking a cigarette or something. And then there were these satellite photos. They claimed to have a smoking gun to implicate the Russians in a major massacre with satellite photos. But those photos only showed about uh, 13 to 18 bodies, not the 400. And again, there was no indication of, of who they were, how they got killed. And then uh, Scott Ritter, the former Marine intelligence officer and whistleblower, gave an interview, and he, he looked at this very carefully. And what he pointed out was that the, the bodies didn't show any signs of bloating, uh, and they actually looked like they had been fresh. These satellite photos were produced from four days after the Russians had left, but they claimed that the bodies were there on March 13th, and that's when they were killed. But Ritter said if they were there on March 13th, when the Russians had still controlled Bukha, if they were in the streets for two weeks, they would have been badly bloated, decomposed. They might have had things coming out of their ears. You know, forensics investigators know that bodies after uh, 48 hours, you know, things like that uh, start to happen. And it's, it's inevitable there'll be some bloating. So these images didn't portray that. So Ritter believed that the bodies were only there for 24 to 48 hours or something when the imagery was taken, which was uh, four days after the Russians had left. So the evidence accumulated would indicate that, well, firstly, there doesn't seem to be evidence of a huge massacre involving hundreds of people. And secondly, that the, of the people killed, there's indication that a lot of them were killed by the Ukrainians and the Azov Battalion. So the Russians probably killed a few, and the Ukrainians, I mean, we don't know exactly, but again, there's indication that a lot were killed by the Ukrainians. So the, the media reporting was completely biased and you know, made it seem like the Russians perpetrated some kind of major atrocity and we have to go in there and stop them. Yeah, I can tell you that I have so many dear friends are very questioning of the coverage that Bringing Light into Darkness has been doing based on its complete contradiction and opposition to the mainstream media's presentation. And I'm just trying to reiterate what you just said, that the propaganda is so overwhelming that it, it, it instills these very real emotional waves of indignation among good thinking, progressive Americans. So when I'm on the phone with a friend and he says, well, then who did it? And I said, well, I'm not sure who did it, but I'm just saying that the evidence that's being presented is not in any way conclusive in the suggestion that it was absolutely certain that it was the Russians is a lie. It's just not validated in facts and empirical types of evidence, much of which you just very eloquently described in your last remarks of the last minute or two. But it's really had a big impression on me, Jeremy, how the American public is played 
like a little child, you know, the emotional type of thing. And, and we're stirred into these incredible anti-Russian sentiments. James Clapper famously said on MSNBC Chuck Todd show in 2017, how Russians are genetically wired to be just these horrific people. It was just the most xenophobic type of impression. And that's really what time and time again, with all of these false reports that you've been indicating, whether it's the Russian bounty story, the Skirple poisonings, right? Before this investigation was even instigated or complete, we had all sorts of diplomatic recalls by all of these Western nations, uh, like you're guilty until proven innocent type of thing, et cetera, et cetera. This whole type of demonization of one thing after another. This guy, Navalny, right? Apparently, everyone is so sure that Putin eliminated him because he was a political opposition candidate. Well, the guy turns out that he has, what, three to six percent of the public support in Russia. He is no threat to Putin in any form or fashion, and he's going to risk this type of demonization for being linked to trying to poison Navalny and stuff. It just it just doesn't add up. At the end of the day, we have to use our deductive reasoning types of stuff. And I remember the same thing back in 2008 in Georgia, right? The Russian economy was pretty much booming. There was no cause for the Russians to provoke such a thing. And there was a, quite a bit of cause for Sacavelli to try to promote a conflict with hopes that uh, the U.S. would come to its aid, that type of thing. But I don't mean to get off course here, but I do think this demonization thing is it's such a central piece of what goes on in our culture to generate hate and dislike of Russia. And the Russian bounty story at the time, Biden used it to show the weakness of Trump saying, you know, here, here you are just, uh, you know, in the pocket of Putin because you won't call him out for the Russian bounty story when in fact it turned out to be unsupported by the facts. In the last couple of minutes that we have, can we circle back? You also did a fairly recent article, I think in May, about this repression in the Ukraine, and you started your comments today alluding to that repression that is occurring and the disappearances of people in the Ukraine. We have this great image making that Ukraine is this great democracy that's trying to protect itself from, from the evil Russia. But in fact, your articles have disclosed all sorts of empirical evidence to indicate that this is anything but a democratic nation. There's incredible levels of repression. And I guess if you don't mind indicating what should the American public know and look for in order to determine the real nature of this Zelensky government. Uh, yeah, I mean, one comparison is with the Phoenix Project in Vietnam. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, to bring it back to your comments right at the beginning, Maybe this is not just about Ukraine, but about the United States and how its imperial ambitions lead the U.S. to distort democracy and create police states and create conflicts and wars around the world. And so the, the American people have to develop an anti-imperialist movement to rein in their government to fundamentally transform U.S. foreign policy, because uh, Ukrainian Secret Service it has been advised by the CIA. You know, apparently, the CIA has an entire floor in the SBU headquarters, 
and they're running Ukrainian Secret Service. And under Zelensky, uh, they're running Phoenix-type operation. You know, the Phoenix Project in Vietnam was an operation where they would call a you know, blacklist of subversives and then carry out night raids and arrest without due process, put them on in kind of kangaroo courts, and in many cases, execute them or just have them languish in prisons that became grossly overcrowded in which the prisoners were tortured, like in the famous Kansan Island, where they were placed in tiger cages. And this kind of Phoenix uh, operation being run in Ukraine, advised by the CIA to root out dissident elements, and it's targeting civilian officials and mayors of towns who want diplomacy with the Russian, want to end the conflict, they're being kidnapped. There's numerous cases documented where these mayors were kidnapped and even killed. And it shows also that the U.S. does not want peace or diplomacy. What you mentioned earlier in the program, the Minsk Accord, that was a diplomatic solution that would have granted the Donbass region a lot of autonomy and would have abolished these language laws. It was signed off on by Russia by even Ukrainian leaders, Poroshenko and Zelensky, I think, gave, even said he supported it, supported by European countries, but it's never been followed through. And the U.S. clearly wants to prolong this conflict. Their strategy is, it was actually outlined in the RAND Corporation report 2019 uh, called something like uh, Weakening Russia. I can't remember the exact title, but that, that's the clear goal uh, Austin said, the defense secretary, even Biden said it, they want to weaken Russia. They want to draw Russia into a quagmire. So they're pouring all that weaponry. So they'll prolong the conflict, deepen the conflict. That will uh, harm the Russian army. You know, it will draw, suck in a lot of Russian resources, suck in Russia into a long quagmire will affect their economy, and then the U.S. can ratchet up these economic sanctions, and they're banking on that, leading to an erosion of the legitimacy of the Putin government and civil unrest developing in Russia that they can then exploit in a Maidan-type coup that they want to orchestrate in Russia. And that probably will not work, that strategy. I mean, Putin's popularity has increased since the war started. But that's the formula, you know, the cynical policy they're they're pursuing. And rhetoric about democracy and human rights is just rhetoric. It's really the, the opposite. They, they don't care at all about human life. They're willing to use the Ukrainian people and sacrifice them as pawns to their larger geopolitical, you know, scheming. Mm-hmm. And it should be remembered the reason they hate Putin and not because he's any worse than other leaders, because as you point out, the U.S. has supported some of the worst leaders in history, including now they support some of the most repressive leaders around the world, like the Saudis. So if you, if you care about human rights and you're an American, say stop funding the Saudi government and cut off aid to, to eat, you know, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Israel. These are countries known for major human rights abuses. So why... And the U.S. government providing them millions or billions of dollars and all kinds of weaponry. You know, so if you care about human rights, stop that. The reason they hate Putin is because he took back Russian control over their economy from the Yeltsin era. And the U.S. wants Navalny is the next Yeltsin who will sell off. You know, Yeltsin orchestrated this huge privatization a program in Russia in which they sold off state industry to oligarchs. And, you know, foreign corporations were able to get in there and start looting Russia 
And we're starting to even get control of major Russian industry and resources like ExxonMobil was even starting to get in on the oil in Russia. And Putin put a stop to that. He took back Russian control over its economy, renationalized aspects, the oil industry, stopped capital flight, you know, put restriction on corporation, made their foreign corporations, made them pay their taxes, which they weren't doing because uh, it was like a banana republic under Yeltsin. And that's why they hate him. And he started asserting Russian power a little more in the world and standing up to the U.S., especially after he saw what happened in Libya with Gaddafi. He realized he could be next, so he started taking a more assertive role and intervened against U.S. interests in Syria. Mm-hmm. So they want to make him pay for that, and that's really what this is all about. And there are countless uh, people suffering because of this, and it's just an illusion that this is about promoting democracy and human rights. Very good. And what has become increasingly evident as one who has studied for decades American foreign policy and the outcomes in the nations in which we have intervened since World War II, that I think you're right, Jeremy, we do have a foreign policy that's pointed towards looting other economies. You mentioned the Russian economy under Yeltsin that we supported, did exactly that. But all of these economies, we've talked about it on other shows and documented how the majority population is always worse off when the United States foreign policy interventions are successful. And here in the Ukraine, as thousands of Ukrainians are sent to their death, are they really fighting for the interests of Ukraine or are they primarily fighting for the interests of the geopolitical interests as perceived by the United States and being played as a pawn along that path in order to get at Russia, in order to weaken it economically and politically? It's something to think about. We have had the great privilege of visiting with Jeremy Kosmarov. He's the managing editor of the Covert Action magazine, which I would suggest is a rich resource of many of these previous foreign policy endeavors that we've alluded to during this show. If you want to study and understand the history of U.S. foreign policy, It's so important, and this is a great resource to do that, because once you understand the history of colonial and neocolonial Western intervention and the techniques and patterns to execute those interventions therein, then as new developing and unfolding events of current times unfold, if you know that history, you can know some of the tendencies of what to what to believe and what not to believe until there's incontrovertible evidence to support whatever position you may have. Usually that evidence or lack of evidence is not made available for some time. So it is important to question these things with that long history that we've been talking about. The operating procedure should really be, as President Obama said, trust, but verify and don't trust until you verify. But anyhow, Jeremy, Thank you so much for being with us. Again, Jeremy Kosmarov, author of a number of books on U.S. foreign policy, and you can access his work at Covert Action Magazine. Jeremy, thank you for bringing light into darkness. Thank you. Thanks again for having me. We'll see you next week. Coming up next, do not go anywhere unless you're not on KOOP.org right now. Switch on over to the internet. If you're on the FM dial to hear Emo Diaries with co-op's very own Stephanie at the Disco. I can't wait. And we go out as we do every week with 
Land of Navity. So, so. 